From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigiter.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Uh, this week, I'm absolutely delighted to have uh, Giles Morgan with me for the latest edition of the Groundsman Conversations. How are you, Captain? Roger, I am back. It's been a couple of weeks since I had my microphone dusted down and um, just feeling quite punchy. I don't know I don't know about you, but there's a lot going on and um, it's very, very good to see you and hear your very dulcet tones. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. And there is so much going on. We've got an amazing guest. But let me ask you a couple of things before we get to the guest um, that I've been I've been waiting to speak to you about because this is your uh, wheelhouse. Um, HSBC and that wonderful young lady, Emma Raducanu, uh, who we've talked about in the past, you know, after our big win, we did wonder whether all these commercial deals were in some way going to distract her, as they have many other pretty girls in the past. I know you can't say that, but it's the reality. Um, Kornikov obviously comes to mind, but it's not the only one. I think even in the UK, somebody once said about Annabelle Croft, oh yeah, she's a great player, but she's unluckily too pretty to do very well. How do you see, given that, you know, you used to be HSBC, would, was that, would that be a deal that you would have done? And if so, how would you have structured it, Giles? Well, the first thing is a deal I wouldn't have done, but that's not to decry what HSBC have done at all. Um, I always took the view that individual sponsorship, and we're going back a bit now, I mean, it was four or five years ago since I left, but individual personal sponsorship, I, I, I tended to steer away from simply because you were always worried about um, personal reputation and humans have a tendency to err. Um, we got very close to sponsoring Tiger Woods um, in about 2008 or nine, and imagine what would have happened then. But then fast forward, he, his road to redemption has been a pretty cool story too. Um, since I've left HSBC, have this is their first really big um, personal sponsorship for a very mm-hmm. long time. They've had ambassadors and they have ambassadors that support the various sponsorships that they do. But this is a, a departure and I think a very brave and a good one. They sponsor Wimbledon, HSBC, so that's kind of the, the bedrock that sits behind this. But what they're doing, and I'm really interested because this is a reflection of social media and influence and another way to go to, to market, which is they're focusing, as I understand it, Emma, and financial literacy and to try and broaden the awareness and understanding of how finance works within the marketplace, which obviously HSBC being a bank, um, using her in a way which is going to be less about 
hospitality and doing kind of warm-up clinics with private bank clients. So I'm sure that will happen. But really, this is going to be an influencer message. So I, I will say I'm delighted for Emma Redicanu. And we obviously, you know, the world will watch to see how she performs. But the focus from the bank has been about Emma as a uh, as someone who can inspire youngsters or certainly help educate youngsters in financial literacy. And I think for HSBC, it's a very big, brave, and I, I applaud it. It's a great departure. Yeah, uh, I, I think I said before, I think she is absolutely perfect uh, as, a, as, a, as a testimonial these days. But let me ask you something. You know this bank very, very well. I don't. Uh, how much um, of that sponsorship is down to the fact that she has got a, an Asian look? Well... I mean, HSBC has for, for many years now, you know, it used to pen itself the world's local bank and it was a, a British bank that was born in Asia. It's, it's very much about internationalism. So I would imagine that her, her pedigree from, from her parents, you know, being British, British educated, British, uh, she's a British citizen, but her parents are both from Romania and China, I think would be attractive. Uh, I don't think it mm -hmm. is the reason, but I think multicultural Britain that says that this is about people from all over the world and it's inclusivity and there's diversity and there's financial literacy and there's her influence um, for a new generation, which is not just about the winning, but it's also, as we see from Instagram and TikTok and all of the other things, these, these young personalities have an enormous appeal. Um, so... As long as... Yeah, no, I get that, Giles. Yeah. I get and that, I think what's, it, what's, it, what's interesting for me about this one is this sponsorship is not about her being the world number one, which which she is not, um, and she may never be. It's more about her position and, and how she represents. So it's this is, a, I guess, a sponsorship in, 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 in the new world where it didn't happen in my day. You know, you had a famous person and you might put your logo on a cap or on a sleeve or on a shirt and do some hospitality, and that was what it is. Now, this is about a direct-to-consumer channel, and I think that's really exciting. No, sure. And for HSBC, who are risk-averse, they're a bank, and they tend to be, this is them showing some um, some, some bottle, and, I, and I'm pleased with them. Yeah, you know, I, th I think maybe um, the, the, the question about the Asian look is misinterpreted. It's not about, um, I wasn't thinking about Britain. I was thinking about the bank, uh, perhaps uh, turning its focus to the much bigger Asian yeah. market for the unbanked. Yeah, I, you know, and, like... and I, that would be fair because the, the, the Wimbledon tennis sponsorship is quite UK-focused. This gives an international feel and particular to Asia. Emma is, as you quite rightly say, um, is, is popular in the Far East for obvious reasons. And I think that the, the HSBC will undoubtedly, with the... <laughs> very big focus on Asia and the Asian market. We'll use her in that in that way as well. So, no, you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, you know, I, I just think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Giles, um, I do think sometimes our industry is very London-centric um, and uh, I just look at, I, I'm a numbers guy, I just look at the numbers in Asia, where the numbers are. Um, anybody that looks at the EPL will be easily reminded <laughs> of those numbers. And um, just the girl Osaka, um, who also isn't doing anything on the court anymore. Emma, who hasn't either. Um, doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't no, matter no. because... Well, people forget, and you're right, the sports industry has a, a great focus to the West, and yet the real value is to the East. Um, I think 80, so. 80% of eighty percent of HSBC's profit, I think, is made in the Far East. It certainly used to this be. This is my number. point. It and wasn't a glib joke. No, absolutely not. And and what's interesting as well is 
I've told this story before, but back in the day, I used to get approached by the the red Premier League teams a lot to sponsor um, uh, the bank, you know, from Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool in particular. And every year I tended to say no. The old model made it very easy to say no and say football's a ruffians game and, you know, pompous old Giles likes to do posh old rugby and grand old golf. But if you look at the numbers now in terms of the, uh, the football supporter in the Far East, there is a very compelling reason that many, many, many major global brands, particularly ones that have a big focus area in Asia, should be looking at football to, to start well, to engage. Sta- well, so that's a great point. So when Standard Chartered were all over Liverpool, was how were you thinking about that at the time? Were you saying, fuck them, I'm really going to get them now, I'll show who's the big boy? Or, <laughs> or did you just... I'm, I'm really curious, Giles. Well, when they did the deal, Standard Chartered, and I know a few of the people there quite well, we rubbed shoulders in the captain's bar in, in, in Hong Kong, which is the only place to drink a pint of ale, in my point of view, in Hong Kong. And I think at the time, originally, the original deal, I hope they'll forgive me for this, was a vanity deal. There was a chairman who loved Liverpool Football Club, and that's why the deal was done. I think that they unearthed quite quickly, however, that they had stumbled upon an absolute gem, which was, we need to engage... Um, you know, the Standard Chartered may be headquartered in London, but they don't have very many customers in London at all. In fact, I don't think they have any. Their power base is the Far East, it's Africa, it's, 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 it's the other markets. And I think they unearthed through media numbers initially that there was a great following and a fandom of, of Liverpool all over the world. With first party data now in play, um, I think they've probably uh, figured out they may have uncovered a gold mine. But I don't think they meant to do it. I think it was a sort of done in the old way. And I think it very rapidly, I hope cool. the Standard Chartered are going to renew because they, they're sitting on something very special. I, I put it this way. I think I can say this now, headline, five years after I left HSBC, I'm now disappointed that uh, HSBC is not involved in a Premier League football club. There you go. There's your scoop. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the great stories in the sports industry, and, and, and uh, it disappoints me that some people sneer at this, but I think the fact that how you look at the world of sponsorship today, as you did when you're in the job, and the changes in your viewpoint is under-investigated by the London-centric uh, industry there. I think that is so interesting and some, you know, you, sh- you should really, you know, put in some way, put down these thoughts, Giles, because it is a little bit St. Paul on the way to Damascus. It, li- it is. Yeah, it, undoubtedly. I, I think that I was trained in the, I was trained in the early 90s with sponsorship being a media buy, uh, but a, a kind of poor cousin media buy. And you always felt a little bit like the colouring in department, a little bit like the Volavant King, a little bit like the, the, the chap that... Um, you know, it was a nice to do. And if you work for a big company, it was nice to do. And the chairman would pat you on the back and say, well done, Morgan, on, on your way. As opposed to now, which is you look at the right the right sponsorships, the right partnerships where you've got massive um, fan engagement and the ability to, to pull that in. It's going back to my boring old data story. The whole business premise of sponsorship investment changes and therefore... This is why I'm pleased that HSBC have pivoted a bit. They've 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 modernised their approach to sponsorship. Something I didn't do then, and you're right. I've had my Damascene moment and continue to bleat on about it because um, this is where it's going, and it becomes very attractive. And rights holders should be excited about sponsorship, providing they 
tear up the old the old book and and rewrite with the with the new interesting with the new data um, approach and and fan data approach. Great, Giles. Um, listen, let's get right into introducing the Sports Digital guest for for today's show, and I'm going to let you do that because nobody better. <laughs> well, I think we're both salivating. Um, our guest this week is he's probably one of the most celebrated. He's certainly one of the most tenacious and I think most admired sports promoters in the world of sport. And he's been doing it for years. Barry Hearn is our next guest to join the Groundsman Conversations. He is a proper, uh, he's a proper Essex boy. He's born and bred. He's also a trained accountant. So something that you'll have a lot in common with him. And Chartered think, accountant. Chartered accountant, chartered, man. Okay. Thanks, Brian. And he, yeah. he did something. He disrupted the world of sport before the term had ever been coined for sport. I don't think he knew he was doing it. He probably would, but he would have put it in another language. Um, Because he is the man who turned snooker um, into one of Britain's biggest sports in the the 1980s. And he was a guy who kind of, one of the guys who created the narrative of personality, of, of stars being the story, which now everyone's talking about drive to survive and how they've unearthed narrative of drivers. This happened in the 80s. This was with not him. this with him and, and Snooker and people like Steve Davis became household names. It was Barry who did all of that. And he then turned his his Midas touch to professional boxing, very famously to darts, which for anybody who gets the chance to go to a PDC event somewhere in the world, go. You will not have more fun with your clothes on, I promise you. Um, <laughs> and I put that against the, t- uh, the Hong Kong Sevens, but you don't need your clothes on for that necessarily. Um, he's also been involved with 10-pin bowling and with golf, which will be interesting as well, his thoughts on, on golf. He was chairman and owner of Leighton Orient from 95 to 2014, which I think you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that makes him one of the longest standing chairmen in football club yeah. history. Saw um, it all. He saw it all. And his sporting empire has been run through the company he founded, Matchroom Sport, uh, a business that continues uh, to thrive and is now run by his, I always think, his doppelganger of his son, Eddie. I mean, the two, that the, the apple did not fall very far from, from the no, tree. No, no. Um, so without further ado, Barry Hearn. Hello, Barry. Good morning. Long time no see. I am extremely pleased to see you, dear man. You're the one of the few sponsorship people that turned me down during my career. <laughs> <laughs> my evil way of getting my way back on you. Oh, I'm so pleased to see you. You can have another crack, but I've got nothing to give you now. (laughs) Immediately you become less attractive to me. It's like an old man with a young lady with no credit card. You know, you've got no time. Um, Barry, let me introduce you to my co-host, Roger Mitchell. Roger. Nice to meet you, Barry. Great thrill for me. So, Rog um, set up this podcast a few years ago. It's sort of gone relatively well from strength Mm. to strength. But Rog may pick your brains about football in particular during the show when we get going because he was uh, he ran the Scottish Premier League for his sins um, a, a while back so he's quite well versed in your world of football as well I had a lot of stick I had a lot of stick up there for a little speech I gave a few years ago James. well not from me that was a definitive moment I, I'd, I'd long gone Barry yeah, yeah. Um, I enjoyed it you know- I enjoyed it Roger because you would have enjoyed it as well because they actually invited me up for the comedy bit before lunch, you know, so I like a little soft intro to lunch. And on the way up, I thought, fuck it. 
Let's have it these people. I love that, man. And I tore them to pieces. And it was like, they were looking at each other saying, who's actually invited this bloke? <laughs> it was very yeah, funny. Yeah, No, um, no, it was actually a great moment because everything you said um, was and is true. And, and Barry, you might not know this because not many people follow up there anymore, but it's still referred to every time there's a oh, poor TV deal. Yeah. When Barry came up, he told us how to do it and we didn't listen. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was, no, I, I've been up there a few times on this book, I've done this book tour and I went up to Glasgow and 30, not, yeah, 30% of the questions were more, were still about Scottish football because they're passionate mm -hmm. about it and there is no easy answer. So it's easy for someone like me to go up and slaughter someone for 30 seconds. You haven't got to do anything to build it. But, but anyway, listen, I'm, I'm excited about this, Giles, so let's, uh, let's rip it whenever you're ready because today is a fishing day. So I'm talking to you now. The moment I finish, I'm back to my house. I have my little bag of goodies, good bottle of red wine, couple of steaks, and I'm fishing overnight, and I will finish my, I do my 24-hour fishing extravaganza. Oh. So, Well, I just have one question to ask you before we um, start the show. How is Marcus Robertson? He's extremely well, and one good. of the life's nice men, as you know. He is. Uh, I got him, I got, I, I slung him off the board uh, yeah. on the grounds that if, if I had one more of his crazy ideas, I was going to go mad. Uh, but we are, we remain very good friends and he's done extremely well out of the PDC, which has become one of the success stories of sport globally in the last 10 years. So he's done very well, but him and his wife are both gorgeous people and I, I love them to death. So just context, Roger, uh, Marcus Robertson was my first boss and my first ever account was the PDC back in 1993. So, um, I, I, and Marcus is also, um, is the uh, inspiration. His mother wrote the Wombles and he is Orinoco. Oh, yes, wow. Gen oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. His mother is one of, his mother was one of the most wonderful people. Wasn't complete, she? She would sit there and say, I would sit there like a little child. She died a few years ago, of course, but I sit there like a child saying, tell me about when you were young. And she would say, well, my daddy was an impresario. And on a Sunday or a Saturday, I would sit on the floor while him and his friends would talk literature, art, classics. I said, oh, really? And who were his friends? Well, Oscar Wilde was there. <laughs> Sake. Walter de la Mer was there. And, went, and, it, and I'm like, pinch me. On her wall, Roger, was a handwritten poem, unpublished by Walter de la Mer. Oh, man. In, in his own handwriting, just sit there. And I've said, like, have you any idea what this is worth? She went, no, Walter gave it to me as a little present. Oh, man. Another world. I, lo I love that. This world didn't happen on my council estate, you know, when people were coming around trying to beat me up. That it, this just didn't happen. I was going to say, did Walter not come to yours in in, no, in Romford? No. no. Oscar, Oscar would have been welcome. Walter <laughs> was a Walter was a bit lefty for me. You know? <laughs> right, we better get started. Yeah. I'm going to wish you a belated happy birthday because I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Yesterday, yeah. Seventy four years young. Are you really? And and in good health. I know you've had a few few scares. Are you feeling sharp? No, I'm getting battered, mate. But I'm just I, I don't give up. So I'm playing cricket for the Essex over seventies on Thursdays. 
I'm in the gym with a personal trainer a few days a week and I am getting slaughtered, mate. But I don't know what else to do to stay, to try and stay young. I've got this theory that I may live forever now. I mean, it may be all over, all the other stuff. I may just go on for, forever. Well, you've certainly had a couple of the lives, so maybe we should be calling you the cat. <laughs> Peter Bonetti would sue you for those that are that old. Or Phil Tufnell, one or the other. Ooh, yeah, so Tell me... Barry, you've been, in, I mean, God, it feels like you've been in the world of, of sport, I mean, all of my life, which says how old you are. But mm. I, I just wondered, when you were a kid growing up, what, what were your own, what was, the, what, were your, what was your fandom of sport? What, what were the things that you used to watch and just get electrified by? You know, I think there's something about sport that, that opens doors and gives opportunity that nothing else does. You know, you, you could be a genius academic genius, but you've still got to go through school, university, etc. Sport seems to be life-changing, irrespective of colour, creed, race, religion, size, you know. So it's always fascinating for me as a youngster growing up. I, for some reason, I wanted to be heavyweight champion of the world. I don't know why. I think we, we used to go to Saturday morning pictures and, and pay our sixpence to get in. And there would be Pathé News clips. And you might see Rocky Marciano or Archie Moore or someone like that on the clips, subsequently Muhammad Ali in those days. And I, I sort of, I was completely enraptured by the idea of just, just you on your own making it. And you can do it in a night. You just have to be brilliant for one night, you know. So it was years later I found out that I wasn't very good at fighting, but I did, I, I spent a lot of my earlier underneath the bedclothes with a transistor radio, listening to fights coming off from the big, you know, across the pond. And in a way, it sort of inspired me to think, it doesn't matter where you are, who you are, what you came from. There is an opportunity out there if, you, if you're brave enough to grab it. And, and boxers in my day were the heroes of the working class. And did you have a sense at any point as a young man growing up and that you might want to be involved in the business of sport, or was it just something that you loved and then it followed kind of by happenstance? Uh, I don't think it, I, I never really considered the business of sport. I considered it, obviously, subsequently became a passion, but it was logistics, the business of logistics that, that actually more I, I embraced better was the idea of thinking that can you organise something better? Can you cure problems before they become problems? So it, from an early day, you know, I started, I realised quite early on that I wasn't the brightest spark in the room. You know, I'm not academically so good, but I don't know anyone that has a work ethic like mine. And that was the thing that gave me the advantage where I was very stubborn. I, I, I wasn't unhappy as a child. I mean, we were obviously working class. My dad was a bus driver. We were poor, but because you don't know any different, you don't get unhappy. It was only later on, probably when you get into your early teens or perhaps a little earlier than that, when you look around the world and you think, why haven't I got an indoor toilet? Why haven't I got a car? Why haven't we got, you know, why don't we go on proper holidays? Why, why do we have to work for the first week on the fields and then the second week we can camp? You know, those questions, because children are, are naturally born happy, I think. It's only life that actually makes them unhappy. And I, I lived in a very loving environment, even if it was an environment we didn't have much. But I saw things, I wanted things, and then I sat down and thought to myself, how am I going to get them? I realised early doors that whilst I'm a sports nut and passionate about everything, I was always good at everything, but never great at anything. So I found something, dare I say it, modestly, 
that I was great at. And great was putting everything together and making sure everyone and having some ethics and some, you know, some integrity. And, and, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the buzz of saying I did that. Whereas I would have actually loved to have been the, the protagonist. It just, life didn't work out like that. I wasn't good enough. And I've maintained my love of sport at every level forever with the knowledge that as a gold medal in enthusiasm, not even bronze in ability. <laughs> but Barry, um, we're recording this today after Father's Day. Hmm. And, you know, when I was prepping for this podcast and reading all the old articles, the book, the other podcasts you've done, um, this whole working class thing comes through. And, hmm. and, and you know, I'm not saying I'm anything like you, but the background's similar. You know, uh, my dad worked at the, the line at uh, uh, um, Renault Cars. Um, I was the first one that went to uni and became a chartered accountant, like you. Um, And um, the thing that I really like about the stories that I read is how you treated your son, you know, from, you know, let's get in the ring and spar when you're 16, Mm. let's see what you've got. He whacks you, Mm. you go down, but you're super happy. Mm. You know, tell, tell us a little bit about the moment that your fear that he was going to be a silver spoon boy left yeah, you and you thought... it's difficult. I mean, I think I grew up... When I eventually found out that there were people with more things than we had, um, my dad died quite early. My mum was a child lady. She cleaned other people's houses. When I found out, I got, I think I developed a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about people that even spoke nicely, you know. I never, I never I heard you. the final whistle of a football match against a public school because I'd been sent off by then. Someone would say, good shot, old boy, and I used to just whack him. Uh, yeah. I don't know why. So fucking true. I know, so it does have this, this thing about it. They've got something I haven't got. And that was, I've had therapy. I'm, I'm not out of it, but I'm getting better, you know, as they say now. I've still got a little bit of working class. So when I suddenly have a son and a daughter, and the daughter's always different because you want the best for your princess, but the son, yeah. is a, the son is a copy of you. So therefore yeah. it replicates and it stands for what you stand for. And then you find out that your son, you know, you've done well in life. I've done well in life. And I managed to put him to a good school. Uh, he, I never went to university, but he could have gone if he'd have wanted to, but he didn't. But at the same time, I didn't like what I was seeing sometimes. I didn't like to listen to the bragging or the outspokenness or the brashness or the some people might call it overconfident I think he I think he deserved the slap and I loved him so I wanted him to be an effigy of me you know that's it I got told off by Eddie the other day when I described him as a project and he hated it he said I'm your son I'm not a project I said no 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 you've always been a project (laughs) you weren't your bloodline is my son as a project, you see, I I don't fear dying because I'm going to be here through him because he sounds like me, he looks like me, he has got the same ethics, he's got the same work rate. But I didn't know that at the time. So when he got 16, he'd be going out with his mates, getting into fights, being Jack the Lad, always having the last word, a little bit like his dad was when I was 13, not 16, you know. But, but that came with a silver spoon. You know, he'd bring people back to his house and try and... He'd tell girls that this was the house was his, <laughs> you know. So 
he liked his fighting. He'd had a three little amateur things, which I went to and I knew he could fight. He was a big lump, but I wanted to find out what he was made of. So I don't know another way. I don't know another way. I don't know how, I, I can't sit down and talk to people because people talk crap. So I can find out by example what it was like, you know? And I think the best way, and, and I was no great fighter. I was still sparring a little bit at 46, 47. I was in decent shape, you know. I, I, I like one-to-one. I just, you know, I'm not good at it, but I like it. We used to have some great times down the Romford gym, you know. I'd be down there and, and all of a sudden, you know, a couple of the snooker boys from upstairs come down and say, Cool, can I have a can I have a go, Baz, with you? Yeah, of course you can. I used to love it with them. But anyone who could properly fight always used to bash. Who them was up. who? Who of the snooker boys was? Oh no, not the pros. No, I'm talking about customers. Oh, customers come down. Every, <laughs> yeah, every working man thinks they can fight. It's hilarious. Yeah. Of course we can't, but we all think we can until you walk up those four or five steps and you realise it's time to go to the toilet three times on the way up. You know. <laughs> And it, yeah, but the thing, the thing, the thing, bad, the thing, bad about working class guys, you know, coming down and say, "I'll have a go." You'd never know when you're going to find the real deal, yeah, and you're no, going to get. It's scared. a bit like fairgrounds, isn't it? It's fairgrounds, <laughs> you know. Coming, if you last around, it's a fiver, you know. But I, but I, I, they would come down. Generally, they would obviously they're terrible, you know. So, and I would. I, I, I used to look good. I used to look good. And then I'd go in with someone. So I went, went in with Eddie. And, and to be honest with you, my intention was to knock him spark out. I wanted to find out what this rich kid could do. And, and my wife knew that. And she went potty. You know, you dare, you touch my son, don't you come home. And I said, look, I have to, it's something in me. I just have to find out what he, you know, right or wrong. I don't know if I'm right or wrong on lots of things. It's instinct, isn't it, takes over. I know the respect is one on the street and enhanced in the boardroom, but it's that way round. So firstly, let's do the, a, a great writer, Hugh McElvenny, wow. once described me as saying, equally at home in the boardroom as on the pavements. And that's, I think that's the greatest compliment you can pay anyone because it means that you understand a little bit about life. You haven't been spoiled. You haven't been you know, traumatised by, by the reality of life. So I took Eddie in the gym with uh, with one intention, that was to knock him spark out. And he's 16 years old, everybody cleared out. I said, I need the gym for three two-minute rounds. That's all I need, boys, and then you can have it back. They thought it was hilarious. Eddie was up for it because you know no fear when you're 16, and he was a bit of a flash son of a bitch, to be honest. He came charging at me, and I hit him, spawned on the gym, honestly. I was never a big puncher. This was enough to take most people out, I think. And he stood up and he took it. And I thought, oh, shit, I could have a problem here. <laughs> and two rounds later, he dropped me with body shots. Painful, you know. I don't mind. Well, I don't mind. I'm, I'm, it's okay to hit me in the face, you know. It's mainly bone. It's not really going to kill me. But the body shots, they, they crucified me. And I, I went down twice and... At the end of the second round, I said, that's enough, son. And he said, I thought you were going to do three. And I went, you're going to kill your father. And I said, there's no need for three. I, I, I found out what I wanted to find out. I haven't had a problem with him since that day. So anyone who says that's a heathen way to talk your son or what a dreadful thing or all these lovies that come around and say, oh, you can't really touch a child, absolute bullshit. 
That was oh, the best day of my month. life with my son. And, and it made us the friends and close that we are now. And I, helped, I think it helped make him the man he is now as well. When you can look after yourself, you don't need to be aggressive. You have a confidence. You have a way about you. Only people, little people, people on drugs, think cowards, they're the only people that are a problem. Real men are not a problem. If you have a problem with a real man, you have a serious, serious problem. Serious problem, yeah. But you don't yeah. have that in life because we don't need to. Now I, I smile at everybody. I'm, I'm a happy person. What please don't, please don't make me unhappy and we'll get on fine, you know. Barry, here's a question for you. That I mean, that, that is a great story. But So you then see your lad, um, he's super successful, super smart, but you see him getting into this social media stuff, no context mm. turn. Yeah. You, see him, you see him hanging out with these kind of like <laughs> YouTubers and like you're thinking, you and I, you look at these YouTubers and so do many people that listen to this podcast and we can think they're a wee bit fake. You know, like, okay, you've got a yeah. lot of followers, but you're not real. So when all that's starting to happen and Eddie's in the centre of this world, do you have a wee word in his ear and say, listen, son, or, or do you just say, I love that you sold all those pay-per-views. Good on you. Yeah, there comes a time when you, it's a bit like building a house, you know. You don't really look at, you don't worry about the roof if the foundations are built properly. You know the thing's not going to fall down, you know. But what you do do is you don't try and tell the builder how to do it because you're not a builder. Now, that makes sense. Rapture that in a kid. So early doors, the job was done. The job was done. My project was done. I built a good man. I built a good man. Someone who's not just smart, but someone who can play the market, play the... And I just laugh. I watch it. I don't... Do I understand social media? Do I understand the people watching even this podcast? Probably not. You know, I'm old. I'm... But I understand communication. I understand appealing to a target market over the years. I understand ignoring you. You have to ignore your own principles sometimes to understand where the world is moving to. You can't be stuck in the past. You have to listen to young people. My, my nine-year-old granddaughter knows no, more about my phone than I will ever know. She's nine, That's you know. True. Yeah. So when it, when the social media boom started and Eddie got involved, I stood back. The job had been done. The foundations were built. Someone was decorating the house. Barry, let me ask you about let's keep with Eddie just for the moment because he's not here to answer back. No, he's in Australia. But which he's, is brilliant. He has, yeah. no, he has no right of reply. And I'm in his office. He <laughs> met my, I gave him my office. When I spoke, when I sort of retired, which I'm, I really found out I'm terrible at retiring, by the way. That's the one job I'm useless at. So I'm actually sitting in his office now, which was mine, but it doesn't look anything like mine because mine looked like a, a lounge and his looks like a highbrow corporate well, you look you look just like a sort of Romford version of J.R. Ewing. There you are. Well, there, no, you can see Ali in the background there. Yeah, there the is. Photo. <laughs> Great photo. Let me, yeah. let me, but on this on this theme of, of Eddie and your pride of him, both from when you sparred with him when he's sixteen to he's forty three, I think now, something yeah. like that. So he's been you know he's been part of the matchroom sport journey with you. How long was it? Did you feel genuinely confident enough? to hand over to him. I mean, how long was his tutelage of you having built this business up very famously in the 80s and it was growing? When was the point that you felt my boy is not, he could be ready, but when was he ready? 
Oh, he was ready the day he was born. <laughs> yeah, he had no choice. <laughs> you know, it was a plan. Like Steve Kerr. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine. I mean, I like to say I played it with a straight bat, but I couldn't imagine not him not being involved in something I was so passionate about. So, of course, his whole life was built up around sport, whether it was Steve Davis being his, you know, his godfather, Steve would stay around, or whether it was Freddie King that would train me and, and would look after him with the boxing side and he would go down the gym every day. He, I suppose he'd like to think he made his own decisions, but really it was already done. It was written. So it was just a polishing, exp- you know, we had this big rock, you know, and inside this rock was a beautifully finely cut diamond. It took time, you know, it took time. You know, we had to chip away, chip away. And he's not the finished deal now, but he's it, what he's done is astonishing. He's changed my company. I mean, I, you know, I have to say. Um, but you see, we, the, the secret of everything is life is replicates sport completely. It's just a bloody game, you know? Competitive so, game. It's a, it's a game you want to win. I've but it's a game you – but there's a, there's a few basic rules in there. It's not just turn up. It's a game you've got to prepare for. It's a game you've got to sacrifice for. It's a game you've got to have that determination to win at all costs, to go the extra yeah. mile, go a mile at least further than any of your opponents. It's the same as sport. So we're playing that game now. I mean, Matrim is a hugely successful company and it's grown from me and a girl underneath a billiard hall in Romford to the world's biggest, one of the world's biggest sports promotion companies out there. Wonderful. Has it changed us? I don't think it has much, you know. As my wife keeps reminding me, I'm still common, as she calls me, you know. And I, and I don't really want to be anything different. But I can't tell her that because we've been married over 50 years and she'd disappoint me that I've not really made the progress. I mean, from the day my mum told me I had to go to elocution lessons so that people would respect me more if I spoke proper, as you can see, it hasn't bloody worked. Barry, I, I've, I've got, I've just before Roger comes in with a proper question, I've got to tell you, the first time I met you, which was sort of mid-90s with a, our mutual yeah. friend Marcus Robertson, and I remember him introducing, I'm a big, tall lump like your son, and Marcus introduced, oh, Barry, this is uh, Giles Morgan, and he's, you know, this, yeah. And you just looked at me so witheringly and went, you'll never work in football with a name like that, and I've never, <laughs> ever forgotten it. <laughs> Well, it's true, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I never did. <laughs> no, no. The world, the, world is, the world is a changing place. I mean, get back to your social media stuff. Is This was something completely alien to a dinosaur like me. But I, I, did, I have got the experience and the brain to say, I welcome innovation. I welcome creativity. And I welcome things that are perhaps not on my radar. I enjoy looking at projects and think, I would never have thought of that. And that, some people say that about me. They say, how did, you, how did you get darts to where it is today? How did you do this? That's just the way you approach things. And, and, and everything is an example of our own personality and our own desires, you know. But there, there's lots of other stuff around it. But you also need that dirty great dollop of luck. Because if you don't get that, you know, frankly, you know, life is so much about, as you look, you get more reflective when you get old, but it's yeah. so much about timings, you know. Oh, I was lucky to be there when that happened or, oh, I was lucky to meet him or, you know. Uh, and that can be And with me and Eddie and my daughter Katie, who doesn't get the same publicity, but is also 
a genius girl that runs all my TV platforms and TV production around the world. You know, it's a joy. It's a joy to work a 16-hour day. Does that make sense? It's a joy to look at a balance sheet and go, we've done well. It's a joy to be able to give people that have been close to you money enough to change their lives because, and a joy to watch sports change where people change their lives and come out of the same environment that you did, but they were better than you because they were good at sport. So let's change their lives for them. Yeah. That, that's the sort of thing. So, But it is just a game. And as you get older now, as my wife said to me, I think the weekend, when we were poor, you never worried about money at all. Because now we've got loads of money, all you do is worry about money. And it's so accurate because you worry about inheritance tax. When I was growing up, I never even thought about inheritance tax, you know. But Barry, uh, um, you're, you're, you're right. I heard, I heard uh, Eddie talking about those seven years and then hearing on another podcast. I thought that was really funny. Actually, live another seven years so that gets you out of the inheritance. But listen, what I wanted to ask you is, is, is this, because, you know, we could literally talk two days on, on all of this stuff, but everybody wants to hear the, these kind of questions, which is, you know, sport is in the middle of this disruption, challenger leagues, um, you know, in golf and everywhere. And... Um, you have been doing this bef- 20 years before anybody was talking about it. And what I want to ask you as an all-encompassing question is this, you know, the freedom that you got to do things in your own uh, governing body in darts and in, in some ways snooker and, and in other ones as well, you didn't get when you were at Leighton Orient and in the football league. Um, mm. How would you look at this world of sport and how it's going to have to evolve with the pragmatism that you've got, what is the kind of guide you could give all of us to do the things properly? Well, I mean, you firstly start off by saying it's all about money. Everything is about money. Yeah, yeah. So don't get snobby about it. Don't get Corinthian on me, please. Amen, amen. You know, I mean, these golfers, I'll be so much, I'm, I'm, I'm disgusted with people that I know in golf. I don't mind them taking the Saudi money. I do it. We just announced August the 20th is Joshua Usyk. Just tell, tell the public, tell, you, tell yourself. The danger is you might be lying to yourself, which is the most stupid thing you can do in the world because you can lie to other people, never lie to yourself because you've got to live with that. Just tell them the truth. It's about the money. So everything we everything revolves around. Do you remember the takeover? There's a question for your podcast listeners. Do you remember the takeover of the Savoy Hotel by Nubil Gabenkin, I think his name was? And everyone said, we will never allow an institution like the Savoy to be purchased by an overseas resident, a foreigner. And Gilbenkin came out with a great phrase, what price loyalty? And his answer was sixpence a share. He upped his bid by sixpence a share and 80% of the shareholders took the money. So there's nothing new, nothing new in life. Just a different, you're wearing a different overcoat. So these people come along, whether they're Saudis or whether whatever they are, and they're going to change it. Why is Leighton Orient different? Because football is a fundamentally flawed business with absolutely dreadful, dreadful controls. 
I mean, dreadful controls. Uh, it makes me laugh that, I don't know, David Beckham is God. I, don't, I think David Beckham's a great guy, by the way. I'm not knocking him, but he's, oh, any prime minister would love his picture with David. But they would they like to help the system enough to produce some more Davids? No, they don't really want to get their hands dirty in it. Why haven't we got an ombudsman in sport who with power? Why do things not work? And they don't work because the system d- demands a benevolent despot to run it. It's worked with snooker and dance because I am that benevolent despot. And as I've got older, I don't want all the money myself. I like to share it around, like to change lives. But I need control because I know what I'm talking about. We've got too many people with too many opinions that frankly are not built on the right precipice. There's people running sport that don't really know how to run a business. And you can't run sport without knowing how to run Amen. a business. The Amen. difference on uh, gymnastics, for example, how they've managed to cock that up is unbelievable with the support and the demand for it globally. And why? Because people don't know how to run business. And sometimes... People that run business don't know how to run small. So you need to find the the square peg to go in the square hole. It's not bloody rocket science. And it really falls on the government to do it. But, of course, they haven't got a clue, a Scooby-Doo anyway. So what chance have they got of finding someone to run small? Whether you're talking Scottish football or you're talking Speedway or you're talking athletics, in 10 years' time, do people actually not realise how few people are going to be playing sport? No, they don't, Barry. They, they miss the demographic cliff. They're it's going to die. It's going to fucking die. Because social media has taught us one thing. Kids don't want to spend the time to be good. Oh, Jesus. So they, like, they like to be advanced. They like to be famous as quick as possible. But they're not going to be good. And they don't have that one characteristic that all great businesses have and all great sports have. It's called sustainability, which is why football is flawed. Because it has no sustainability below the top levels. Okay, Barry, I've got I've I've got a question for you because this is so important. Don't start me on this because I could go on. No, no, I'm going to I'm going to start you on this because uh, I heard you in other podcasts. You're never been really the owner of a club. You're just the custodian. Um, All the things you've just said the last five minutes. Let me ask you this million dollar, trillion dollar question. Why the fuck are the Americans coming in and investing when there's those two things you've just said? One, you don't really ever own it. And two, even if you do, with no relegation, with relegation and no salary cap, you're just going to lose a shitload of money. Why are they still investing, Barry? Because it's the beautiful game and it breaks all those emotional rules. And, you know, I, I've, I know some wonderful Americans that have taken a stake in Lake Norrie, my, my old football club. And they just love their sucker, their English community sucker club. Why has two Hollywood stars gone and invested in Wrexham? Because you know what? This is the worst thing about football. It's bloody exciting. It's bloody great when you have a win. (laughs) And you wait 10 years to make that extra round of the FA Cup and you think about it. When I go to bed at night, do I not see Jonathan Toure dancing between two static Arsenal defenders as he smashes the ball under the hapless Al Mounier from just outside the the penalty area to give us a one-all draw against Arsenal? Is that not one of my closing thoughts before I go to sleep? I'm a sad bastard. 
Yes. And that's why life is so wonderful, why we have to embrace it. But we can improve it, but we have to accept that there are weaknesses in ourselves. I bought, listen, you're never going to talk to a more hard-nosed bastard than me. But when I bought Leighton Orient, my heart, my wallet merged against everything that I believe in. Everything. And yeah, but Americans, they say they're different. The essence of the game. There'll always be people that fall in love with it. Football is not a sport. Football is a religion. Let's just understand that. Well, here, actually, you've said that here. So here was my question that I alluded to at the start, Barry. My big question. I've never heard anybody ask this. Um, I read, I've read. i read a lot about you for this, this podcast. That's how I like to do the things. St. Francis Hospice, some of the quotes you make. Are you a religious man, Barry? Mm. Yes, I, I think am. you are. Yeah, I am. I th- but, it, I don't, but I don't need to go around with it stamped on my forehead. No. You know, I remember the great story about the Jehovah's Witness knocking on the door. And the woman said come in and tell me what you want to explain. Would you like a cup of tea? He said, I don't know what to say. He said, I've never got this far before. (laughs) So for me, it's a personal matter, as is charity, as is, do we believe... If you want to be deep for 30 seconds, do I believe in... No, I do. So you're, you're speaking to the choir here. Right. So if you, if you, if you, do you believe in the spiritual existence of a... No. Do right. I believe in something more mystic than that that sets the rules of life out? Yes. There are certain rules. And sometimes we all break those rules, by the way, because we're all human. But there is a driving force, and to do the right thing is a driving force. And I think as you get older, you appreciate it more than you do when you're younger. You know, we all start off Saturday morning, you know, Sunday morning church was was not, you know, it was obligatory. But we didn't, we went because we were told to go. I don't go to church now, but I have thoughts of my own where I evaluate what I think is fair and I think what is the right thing to do. And the right, doing the right thing is where I think religion comes into it. There are some principles there that I will live by. And, you know, you understand it when you look at the world. The world's a shit place. Can we change the whole world? No, no, certainly not. So, therefore, oh, sorry. My daughter has just involved herself. Um, Yeah, so I, I I I believe we're led. And I believe in fate, which is an extension of religion. So one last question on this is, which is something I personally struggle with. How do you reconcile that goodness, which you can see in the work you do and what you've just said five minutes ago, with a hard-nosed Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, chartered accountant, numbers don't lie, do what you need to do and just get it done. How do you reconcile those two, Barry? I think it's quite straightforward. I don't think it's an issue, really. If you, you know, go back to the sporting comparison, right? There are rules of a game of sport. But within that game, you go right up to the edge of the rule. So do you play hard? Yeah. Do you live hard? Yeah. Um, Do you cheat? No. Why? Because there's rules. And, And if I cheat... It's not like winning, is it? There's something fundamental 
about the rights and wrongs of life. And I just compare it to the rights and wrongs of sport. I'll take every advantage I can get. You know, in business, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm ruthless, I'm brutal. I have a very clear focus is the way I describe my business. I, I focus and I don't stop until I get to my chosen land. I call it the land of milk and honey. I don't know where that comes from. It's been mentioned in another book somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. Barry, let me let me take some of our listeners are, are, are young. They they might know if they've done their research. You you famously um, revolutionised snooker, and mm. then you have worked across a number of sports through Matchroom and and helped to galvanise those, particularly darts, PDC. It's been a huge success. Go back in time with snooker. You 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 started to build narrative around individuals and bring personalities mm. and, and all the rest of it. How much was snooker the blueprint for the rest of your business? How much, when you reflect back and go, it was snooker that set yes. your own rules for the rest of the business? Well, without snooker, I wouldn't be talking to you now. And without Steve Davis, I wouldn't be talking to you now. People, There are a few people in my life I owe an enormous debt of gratitude to. Um, doesn't mean it's not going to give me any money, by the way, but thanks a lot, <laughs> boys, and uh, lunch is on me. So I loved snooker because... You see, I'm too mean to go into, you know, when people talk to me about you should be investing in this and should be investing in that, and you mentioned a name there that, that Warren Buffett. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is a very smart kid and a, and a very sad kid in, in his same sort of way from life. But he's, he's still in that same old house. He, he's never enjoyed himself. He's always been in that house. Yeah, but, I don't understand That's the thing, that. no, but that's a, that's a mistake by you. You see, see, what he does is how he enjoys himself. You know, and that, uh, it, but he just likes things that are unusual in terms of studying numbers. And But I can understand him, and I can understand him. And he's also at a stage of his life now where he's a bit more reflective. And, you know, I mean, we could have this podcast, by the way, go on for several days, but yeah, we could. The, the, the Warren Buffett story I love is when he, he's, sadly, his, his first wife died and um, she was very charitable and Warren wasn't. And he phoned his friend Bill Gates and said something like, I think I should give some money away and you've got a global, you know, in her memory. And, he, Warren's, and Bill Gates said, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. What, what do you want to give? He said, I thought I'd start you off with $30 billion. <laughs> which is a sort of that is now that's a road to, that, that, that's a road to Damascus moment isn't it you know and, and where do we come from when, when my road my, my moment was snooker where suddenly I saw an opportunity now, now we all see opportunities in life and some of us look back on them and say I should have that's a, that's a weakness because I'd rather make a mistake than say I should have and not tried something so Snooker came along, and I was quite brutal in the early stages of my life to make sure that my, me and my family were, were protected as much as possible. And I smelt a pound note. I was very dangerous. I smelt two pound note. I was extremely dangerous. There weren't so many rules in the early days, frankly, um, but we got better. But with snooker, I saw the chance to create a business through a sport Unlike anything that had been done before, it was quite a unique moment, you know, and it centred around some of the things that were in our life because I'm not really a genius. I hate to have to say this. I know I'm sharing your secrets here. 
I'm a I don't buy that for a second. I'm a I good, don't buy that for I'm a, a good copycat. I'm a good copycat. So I looked around and thought, you know, what are we, what are we doing in our lives? You know, we're sitting there watching TV on the set with our mum and dad. We're watching Coronation Street. We're watching subsequently EastEnders. We're watching Dallas. We're watching these serials. And what's the most important thing is people remember people in those. Is so it's a soap opera. And my, first, my thought was, you know, sport is also a soap opera, but it's not wide enough. So, you know, Dennis Compton would turn up at Lord's in his dinner suit, having been at a function the night before and score 100 before lunch. He was a personality, even in those days. So we needed to transfer that into sports that by the snobs, and which there were millions of snobs in sport, said, that's not sport, old boy. Well, as soon as they said the old boy, you whack them, don't you? That's the old school. And then you start saying, let me educate you to what the real sport is. And this education process is still ongoing because there's still snobbery in sport. Yeah. How anyone puts money into golf, I've never, I own the PGA, you're a pro tour, I love it. It helps young golfers develop their talents. Golf is another rubbish business. Yeah. Simply because there's no viewers, there's no players, there's too many barriers yep. to entry. I hate, and this is working class, I hate any form of barrier to entry because that's what slowed me down. And I, re I resented it, the fact that when I became an audit manager at one of the main chartered account companies in the world, they brought me in and told me, congratulations, you're the youngest we've had in 200 years, you're very smart, you're doing a great job, but this is as far as you go. No, they said that, I'm Barry. I'm 24. They I'm, said that? Yeah. Oh, and they, and I looked at it and I thought, well, I knew. Okay. I'm not, I, I, I won't be here for long. And they said, you know, you're going to have a great pension. You, you're really going to, but you haven't been to university and your family has no connections or money. End of story. So you wouldn't make partner? That's no, the no, never. That no, no, you. never make partner. Today, today's a different world. In those days, it was obligatory to wear a bowler hat at Cooper Brothers. Obligatory. Right. I used to wear a white suit. I used to wear a white suit. And I remember getting in the lift with a wonderful man called Alan McClintock, who was the senior partner in Thompson McClintock, that old Scottish firm. Yeah, yeah, he's famous. He's very famous, McClintock. And he looked yeah. down, he's, he had these little half ring glasses on. And I was a flash bastard. I wanted to be noticed. I didn't know how else to be noticed. So I wore a white, not every day, every now and again, I wore it like a John Travolta white suit. This Alan McClintock looked at Thompson McClintock. And he went, Jesus. Do you work for us? I went, yes, <laughs> yes, Mr. McClintock. He said, Good Lord. I always <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> I said, You see, there's lots of secrets in life, and one of them is don't be a secret yourself. So you have to stand up. If you fancy your chances, stand up and be counted. Otherwise, yeah, just sit in the shadows. You'll be fine. Yeah, You'll be fine. You'll 100 be 100%. So that was the reason why when I looked at snooker, you realise basics and you get the basics right and everything follows. Number one, in any sport, you need activity. Before anything else, before money, you need activity. Because you're born to play sport at a high level. Your dream is to play you need 
to have the opportunity to play. So you take away barriers to entry. You give it activity. Secondly, you start working on the prize money. You must make sure prize money goes up and up so you can actually turn around and say to people, you will change your life if you're good enough to participate and win. You will also inspire other people to say there is an opportunity there. Once you've got those two fundamentals in place, then you're off and running. Then you need to grow. So how do you grow? You grow by exposure. You grow by defining your target market. You don't kid yourself where you want to be. You decide where you are. That's the most important thing. You don't say, I would like to be, I would like to appeal to the A1, B1 of this world. No, you're a C2, D1 sport, mate. Get used to it. And by the way, that's a fabulous market to be in. They're yes. loyal. They'll, they'll, they'll back you. Just don't take liberties with them. You'll be fine. First thing I do when I go into a venue is, how much is a pint of lager? Because if you're going to take the piss out of my customers, I'm not coming to this venue. And over a period of years, that thinking, that mentality will create a business plan for you. So you create then, you need the characters in the same way as on Coronation Street or Dallas or whatever. And that's where you start building the personalities behind and you're telling the story. And when I got eight snooker players together and said, right, listen, I'm not going to change you. I'm just going to exploit you better. So Jimmy White, you know, you can't read and write, but you can work a six-horse accumulator out faster than every man I've ever known. You are Jack <laughs> so true. So true. Dennis Taylor, you are a funny, funny Irishman. Wear the silly glasses, tell jokes. Terry Griffiths, you're Welsh. Automatically, you think you can sing. When you play, can you please sing a little bit under your breath and comb your hair a lot? Steve Davies, you're the boring one. You will wear a white suit and you won't talk to anyone. This is the truth, man. This is the truth. And in the end, we had a package. And when we had a package, we went to a broadcast and we said, look at this. And then we start, that's the small things. Like in darts, you know, the nicknames, the entry music, the, the creating that. Most of these are copied from WWE stuff and yeah. USC yeah. have had an influence. As, you just listen and you learn and you listen to your customers and you don't, you don't get stuck in what you thought was right or where you, you were advised it was right. People don't know. But the one thing I will tell you is blue collar is king. Blue collar is king. Even in the difficult times that we are about to experience for the next yeah. three or four years, blue collar, there's an awful lot of them and they're good yeah. people. Yeah. And you must therefore, a lot of people talk about the, the Netflix effect of, you know, drive to survive in F1 and now it's seemingly every sport is sort of trying to get the... He was doing it 20 years ago. Behind yeah. the scenes documentary. Mm. You must be looking at going... Been there, done that. That was kind of part of the blueprint back in the 80s, presumably. Yeah, it's, there's an extension. The difference is money's bigger now because people suddenly realise it's worth money. You know, I've got this thing going on with, with trying to sell more books than Eddie, right? And I'm losing and I'm going to lose because he's got a couple of million yeah, social media yeah, followers. I yeah, can't beat that. Yeah. I'm no, all no my contest. Nuts off. I'm all over the country. I'm no contest. There's no contest. Well, Barry, well, okay. no, so when are you going to get into esports? Because you should then be able to accelerate out and get all yeah, of the kids on your Esports is not a business as yet, a proper business for me. Yeah. I agree with that. I can't yeah. understand it, how it works. You know, well, it, I can't it's understand It's working because it. it appeals. 
it appeals to younger people. And there is a, there's a way of doing it that I haven't worked out yet. And I may not be able to work out, but Eddie may be able to work out. But when you get esports sessions in Korea drawing 30,000 live crowd, you take it seriously. And it will have a future. It's just a way of creating something that is not just game financed. It needs to be broader in its spectrum. And the social media or the streaming activity may be the way to do it. But there's too, there's too many brands out there. There's too many versions out there. Yeah. You need something that is solid and you say, this is it. PDG darts right. is great. There's lots of other darts out there, lots of other darts. There's only one PDC because we've made the brand so big. There's lots of mixed martial arts ideas, but there's only one UFC. And Eddie will make matchroom boxing the same as that. There'll be always lots of boxing promoters. There'll always be lots of boxers, but there'll only be one Eddie Hearns matchroom. And the difference is when you go to a PDC, when you go to a dart show, most of the time, I think all the time, you don't even know who you're going to see. You buy a ticket for the dance. Yeah. There's a yeah. Chaz and Dave Barry, <laughs> But But Barry, um, on exactly this, and, and this one is our sponsor question. That's how we finance this, Sports Digita. Um, here's their question I'd like to ask. I heard Simon Jordan. I don't know if you know Simon Jordan yeah, at Crystal know. Palace. Yeah, yeah. Right, He's always on about, you know, this is what the Premiership should do. Um, we should just go direct to consumer, 100 million. Mm. Subs- so like you get you the... I know, I know, but put it in the context of what you've seen with the way you changed boxing from pay to pay-per-view to, to subscription. It can, it can work, but it needs a little bit more thought. Now, Simon Jordan's a nice man, and he's actually, I've got to say, turned into a very big name on radio. Yeah. You know, he, he, he wasn't so clever, so smart in football. I'm sure he'll look back over the, what did he lose, £30 million of his own money. Yeah. It's not the smartest deal in the world, is it? So, OK, everything is... <laughs> Everything is going to be tempered with history because history educates, right? It allows us to speculate on the future. Now, the principle of what he's saying, of course, makes sense in the new digital way. But you've got to factor in a few other things, otherwise your business is not sustainable. So you factor in, let's not forget the cost of production. Let's Let's not forget the cost of marketing. Let's have a look at it, because I've got to tell you, at the current rights fees, £5 a month doesn't make any sense at all. So should it be £9.99 a month? Are we talking about VAT? Have you taken that off? So you see, the accountant in me comes out and says, look, we all love, I love to listen. Do you ever love to listen to the old man in the corner of a boozer somewhere? Because they exist in every boozer. Everywhere. In the world. And they know the answer to everything. And I often wonder, why are you sitting in this boozer when you should be owning all the boozers in the world if you're so frigging smart? But of course, the answer is you're not. So with Simon, the basis is a, the basis of idea, but needs to put a little bit more common sense into it first and a real rationale of numbers. The Premier League were oh, run by some very sensible people, the best of them all was Richard Scudamore, who was for sure a smart kid. Worked for me as uh, one of my directors on the Football League when I was on the. He was uh, chief executive of the Football League. I he instantly knew he was a smart kid, and he remains a friend, so I'm biased. But 
If there was money for the Premier League in that, they'd have done it years ago, mate. But you don't speculate when you've got all these other people doing all the work for you, all the investment, and losing their own money. So the question remains, I don't know a broadcaster that makes money out of Premiership football, but it puts them on the map and it makes them famous. And you factor that in, it's not such a bad deal for broadcasters. I know broadcasters that have stopped taking Premier League football and are now making a lot of money and are very happy that Premier League football gave them their start. So we're in a transition period. The Mm. move to digital comes at a cost in terms of less exposure for your brand. People used to say how much easier it is to build a personality or a product or an event on terrestrial free-to-air television, and that remains the case because it goes to a wider audience. When I was doing boxing on ITV on the Saturday night, I would get 10 million viewers. I would be able to grow Nigel Benn, Michael Watson, Chris Eubank. Eubank. Uh, If I go on Sky today and put a standard show on Sky, maybe I'll get 150,000 viewers, 200,000 viewers. Takes 25 times, 40 times, 60 times as long to do the same job, which is where social media and digital comes in. It reaches a different audience, and that's the important, because that may be the future. So in a summary, yes, but one step at a time and you have to have a little bit more common sense than to make outlandish statements. There is some future in that, but it's not going to come yet. In my view, Sky will end up not as a broadcaster, but as a platform. Sky will be hosting rather than paying rights fees. That will come about in the next three to five years, in my view, simply because it makes common sense. They have spent billions on setting up the infrastructure. No one else has done the same job remotely as good. So when they come to you, and whether it's a design or whether it's a, a football project, I believe you'll end up with a menu of choices on a Sky platform which says for $3.99 this, for $1.99 that, for, for $9.99 this, and you'll be able to buy them, and Sky will take a percentage off the rights holder in each case, and they will end up being even more profitable than they are today. That's much more common sense. Barry, you mentioned um, earlier that, you know, retirement is um, not something that has come naturally. Oh, I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible. And and it strikes me from this podcast that you're nowhere near retirement. Um, So how are you? sure. How are you filling your days? I believe you're about to go fishing today. So tell us just a little bit about the Barry Hearn lifestyle now that you're not 24-7. You're probably just sort of maybe 15-7 and you're Mm. taking a little bit of foot off the gas. What, What else do you do? I, I study numbers. I study data. I educate myself because I find it keeps me alive. Um, I mean, I have some brilliant management, and, and I say they're brilliant because they've all grown up at the at the feet of the master. But then they've added that little bit of something to themselves, which has taken it to the next level. You know? Are you yeah. saying that you're the Jedi Knight of of the sports yeah, industry? Absolutely, okay. yeah, absolutely. I, um, and if they're ever in trouble, they know where to go. If they're ever up against something they haven't seen before, they know someone to talk to that has seen everything before and maybe didn't even recognise it or may have copped it out myself and may have learned something, you know. But what I see myself now as uh, as a continuing the benevolent despot regime because you can't be weak 
in, in any in anything in life. You know, you have your beliefs, you have to be strong with those beliefs. And there'll be time when those beliefs are questioned and time, you know, and maybe you get it wrong. But one day you slide away and six months later, probably no one will remember you. So that's okay as well. I mean, I don't I don't think we've got any any rights to anything. So for me, my day is still goes back to the childhood. I still base my days on my weeks around sport. So today is fishing. It's a 24-hour fish. I have a little cabin down by a lake, as, as, as I'm sure all my bus, all my mates from council estates all got. Um, sorry, but, you know, one day. It's true. One day. Yeah, yeah listen, I say, I say to everyone, hasn't everyone got a cricket ground in their garden? No, no. Oh, well, okay. Maybe I got lucky. Or maybe I just decided... I wasn't going to take any excuses or any liberties with anybody, and I was just going to graft. Yeah, uh, don't, don't, don't don't give me any excuses. You know, we do. Yeah. In comparison, we do live in the land of opportunity, and I know we're not perfect. I know there's lots of things we got to get right, but overall, we still live in the greatest country in the world. We might like to criticise it, but we are very well off where we are. Thank you. So, I will go fishing for 24 hours, <clears throat> then I'll be thinking. Wednesday morning I shall have a session with uh, my fitness trainer because I'm getting old and I need to be pushed because I get lazy and I don't want to be lazy. So I'll have a couple of hours with him and that will be very good. On Thursday I'll play cricket against, I think it's Sussex this week, for Essex over 70s, of which I am currently averaging 31.5 with the bat. Uh, but, but No, no, yeah, not, I can play a little bit. But That's my, bloody good. But my legs and my bowling's going badly. I'm do, if I do eight overs, I can't walk for three days. Eight overs, you're 73 for fuck's sake. 70, eight 74. overs. No, no, but so what, eight overs? Bollocks is my phrase. I am only <laughs> limited by my own imagination <laughs> and I will not take a step backwards. I will not turn into one of those people. I met a guy the other day playing golf. I play quite a bit of golf and I'm very bad. And I said, he's retired. I said, what do you do? And he went through his week like we're doing. He said, on Thursday, I'd clean out my garage. I said, don't you want to slit your throat? <laughs> on Thursday, you clean out your garage. I mean, I can't even have a conversation with you, mate. <laughs> so, so I'm doing my best to try and think young. Um, then, I, you know, I will see my grandchildren over the weekend and we have a family thing on Sunday. Everyone comes to lunch. This weekend is my, my two young boys, twin boys' uh, birthdays. It's just a wonder, you know, and we, we, we have holidays together and things like that. So, but in between, like today, I will take my file down to the fishing with me and I will review probably the progress I'm making on spreading Nine Bull Pool as an organised circuit around the world. Where am I up to? What do I need to do? What investment's required? What's the profitability of existing events? Where are my potential partners in the future? Which sites around the world should I be looking at? At the moment, I'm talking to Abu Dhabi, Bahrain, Saudi and Qatar. Mm, Southeast Asia, a little bit slow to come out of COVID. So all these things are going through your head. And do you know what it does? It, when you sit down with, with the old lady in the evening, you feel like you've had a proper day, you know, and, and she's got a load of horses and she's, you know, she's very excited about different things. She's been nominated for Small Breeder of the Year. 
Oh, there's an exclusive. So she had a fabulous year last year with one of her horses who bred some amazing horses. And this all sounds like a little boys club, but there's a lifetime of effort gone into achieving where we are. And when you talk about people paying a price, I I, I encourage everybody. I try and talk to kids all the time, but they don't really understand yet what is that price. Because that price is a big price. So we can all talk about, oh, I made sacrifices and all that. Look at look at top sportsmen and compare them. You know, when Jack Nicholas said, maybe I got lucky because I ate a thousand golf balls every day before breakfast. You know, let's just put that into a business context and all that. So someone like me that comes out of, you know, a happy home, but not palatial, you know, no garden, nothing, you know. I like trees, so I buy farms now, and I walk around them, you know, and I don't give a monkey when people go, oh, is it? No, but that's what I do. And by the way, it's also inheritance tax friendly, so I don't have to worry about that. Seven years, seven seven years. Got to love seven seven years, years. man. Everything is is on a seven year. Eddie Eddie sent me a text. No, I haven't talked to you, though. He sent me a text the other day. He went, "Um, I can't believe you're 74, Bazza. He said, do you think you might be able to make 80? And I texted him back, that's because that money I gave you the other day, you don't want to pay any of that back, do you? No, I don't. (laughs) Barry, he's he's getting on to Ladbrokes. You know, what price the old man to make 80? You know, he's pretty good. He's hedging it off, he's leaning it off. The tax bill. Barry, we could and we would probably talk for hours and hours and hours. Um, we've got to let <laughs> you go. You've, you've got you've got fish. Well, you, 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 the, the lesson you've got to learn is don't talk to me Monday morning because I'm dying to talk to someone on a Monday. I've had too <laughs> much of my own self, you know. So it's a pleasure talking to you guys and uh, well, and, and I'm nearly well, forgiving and, you for and, not doing that. I have to tell you one story just before we go, right? About Giles Morgan. So. He's got a really big job with HSBC, sponsorship director or whatever. I think he's based in Hong Kong, weren't you, Giles? Yeah, yeah he was the main man, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking, this is happy days. I'm going to take his trousers down, you know. So <laughs> we're having these conversations and I'm just feeling, you know, there's a little bit of public school boy. Did you go to public school, Giles? I, I did, yes. Yeah, of course you did. See, I should have whacked him straight away, shouldn't I? Would have saved all those conversations. <laughs> Anyway, we're chatting away, but the line that, Giles, I've mentioned this so many times, without your knowledge, this is gospel true, because the other thing about getting old is you don't tell lies, because it's a waste of time, because you can't even remember what you do, you know. I said, I suggested to Giles Morgan that he should sponsor Fishermania, fishing, right? And... I was arguing that, you know, this HSBC are the bank of the world. You know, they're, they're everyone's favourite bank, blah, blah, blah. So what is the sport of the world? Well, the biggest sport in the UK is fishing because more people go fishing on a weekend than watch professional football, which is my best-selling line. It doesn't get me anywhere, but it's a true line. And Giles Morgan said to me, Barry, he said, if I go to my board and I suggest fishing or darts, which is the other thing I was pushing, he says, I will get the sack. <laughs> and I told myself, he's a, he's a good man, but he's honest. At least he's honest. So you yeah. never got the sack, and I never got any HSBC money. But the difference is on the snobbish side, 
People will put in money without thinking about it for different reasons. You know, if it ticks boxes is very popular these days. I'm not really into yeah. ticking boxes. I'm just living in the real world. So I want, you know, we want to change lives. We want to be relevant and we want to give people value for money. And that's, that goes to sponsors as well. Well, Barry, you've been in the real world of sport for a hell of a long time and you've given a lot of people through the sports, but also through um, your own words, so much joy and entertainment. And I hope for at least seven more years. So yeah. what are you doing, Giles? Are you still playing a bit of golf? Uh, very badly, um, not really, um, but just hack what do you around. Do? What do you do to stay active yourself, Charles? Uh, well, I'm doing <laughs> what you mean physically active. Yeah, <laughs> walk, walk the dogs twice a day. That's all. Right. It's better than nothing. Yeah, not, not and far I, I've away, got a Peloton bike that's collecting dust too. But the, the, the some of the instructors are quite attractive. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, as you get older, that becomes less relevant. So I'll leave that one with you. <laughs> Boys, it's been a Buddy. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Barry. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. Uh, can I be bold and say that is probably our best ever guest? Would that be fair, Giles? Well, I think not only is he such a massive character, evidently, but also he is so wise. And yeah. his instinct, but also... Many people have heard him speak at conferences or whatever, and they think it's just the Essex gob. He's probably the most applied businessman that I've ever seen in sport. And the analysis and homework and preparation, coupled with the charm and the, all of the, the piece, you get the full package. He is an absolute, it's all energy. Uh, and I think for all of our listeners, I'm so glad, funnily enough, that we've had him on the show sort of four years into Are You Not Entertained? As we've been... Um, talking through the business of sport, the changing commercial landscape of sport. Is, I think if we'd had him on in the first year, our listeners, we wouldn't have been ready for him. I think we're ready no. now. That is a validation of nearly everything we've talked about in the last four years. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think people just need to listen to that. Uh, so many key points of wisdom that came out there about, you know, in many ways, you know, don't deal with the world the way you think it should be, deal, deal with it the way it is. Just came out in spades there. The numbers don't lie. Uh, it's all in that, uh, our interview, Giles. Um, you should be very, consider yourself very lucky that he's a mate of yours because he is a top fucking bloke. Yeah, he, he he is. But I tell you what, what he didn't say on that story as I was turning his fishing and darts and snooker down, it was a quite a memorable lunch for, for lots of reasons. Quite a lot of wine um, went. What he doesn't know is not only was I terrified of perhaps having to go to the HSBC board with a proposal that we're never going to see the light of day, I was pretty shit scared of saying no to him. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know In how it would end for me. <laughs> In a posh accent especially. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, anyway, great stuff. Anyway, let's let's um, thank everybody for their time. I think they, they should be quite grateful to have tuned in because that was glorious. Um, if you want to follow us, rate and review, you know where that is. It's entertained Dar on Twitter. That's the word Dar. Uh, you can find us in various places. You can find Giles at uh, at Giles Morgan seventy one on Twitter, and you can find me at RPM Como as in the lake. As in the lake. Roger, that was a lot of fun and we'll... That, yeah, it was great fun. Take care, my friends. Cheers, man.